Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Tuan Nguyen, partner at Information Venture Partners. Information Venture Partners is a early stage VC firm that invests primarily in services of software companies that largely operate in the financial services space. And with that, here's my interview with Tuan. Hello, Tuan. Hi, good morning. How are you, Jason? I'm very well. Yourself? Very well. From sunny New York today. Sunny New York. I'm in cold Toronto, so (laughs) I have no sympathy. So Tuan Nguyen of Information Venture Partners. Tell us about Information Venture Partners. Great. I'm happy to. Information Venture Partners is a venture fund headquartered in Toronto, Canada. I am in our New York office. We are a venture fund that focuses on enterprise SaaS for the financial services market as a key sector. But we also look at B2B fintechs, insurtechs, cybersecurity, and financial accounting software. Our thesis is that the spend by financial services companies in particular are going to triple, if not more, and it's not just our thesis, IDC and a lot of research backs this up. It's going to triple every year on out until millennial. <laughs> because of that, we believe that this is really just an amazing time to be in the space that we're in. We're early stage investors, which means we come in when a company is just starting to get product market fit, make some revenue in the door, has interesting uh, you know, leadership team, a vision, a product, and has clients. And we're able to come in, lead around, and actually help them scale. That's sort of where our secret sauce is. I can talk a little bit more about that. We have about nine investment professionals in Toronto. The fund itself was actually Founded by Rob Antoniatis and Dave Unsworth, and it was spun out of RBC Ventures earlier in the early 2000s. I'm actually in our New York office, yep. but everybody else is in Toronto. So, you know, it is a North American fund, and we look at North American companies exclusively. Excellent. So this was started by other individuals and spun out of RBC Ventures. Tell me about what precipitated the creation of Information Ventures. Yeah, I mean, I can give you a little bit of a publicly available backstory. Um, you know, there's no, there's no secret inside, inside baseball story. Okay, by all means, just publicly available. <laughs> Rob, Rob actually was a um, a venture uh, capitalist out in Silicon Valley in the in the 90s, way before fintech was ever cool, way before investing was ever really cool. He was recruited back uh, to be a part of RBC's uh, leadership team for the RBC Venture Fund itself. And that was a single LP fund working very closely with Dave. And they had an opportunity to do a management buyout uh, around the time of the financial crisis. So the team had actually been leading investments. It was very much a strategic focused fund as well as a return. So always sort of that double double um, helix, if you will, especially as it comes to corporate venture. And when they had the opportunity to do that, they they bought, bought out the fund. And then we're actually now in fund three. So uh, it's survived its inception. Grace, <laughs> actually, I, I'm very proud to say, you know, according to Cambridge Analytics, we're top 10 decile in this that we play. We're a small but mighty team. I think we definitely punch way above our weight. Okay. So you said some, a couple of very interesting things there. And one of them was 3X growth annually in SaaS products. And for those of you listening who don't quite understand that, that's services as software products. So think about monthly subscription models where basically you don't buy the software, but you're kind of more or less renting the service in along a year, a monthly, yearly, multi-year contract. So what are the driving factors in your mind that are driving that trend altogether? Yeah, I'll actually start out with a little bit historical context on my background because that might help to talk about the trend that we're seeing now in financial services. But I was a, um, I started in financial services consulting for many years and actually ran the customer experience platform for Citigroup Private Bank in my early career. Mm-hmm. And then around like 2004, I actually started to see a shift um, 
from on-premise, we call it on-premise technologies, but technologies that, that are typically, you know, think about, um, I'm gonna try to remember who I'm talking to here, but- Big huge data servers. Yeah, huge data servers, data rooms, yeah. data centers, everything, all software was actually done through CDs or installations. I mean, I did that. I installed SQL <laughs> as an early consultant, you know, a young consultant. And um, I remember it was actually quite painful because I would be in the data rooms for like weeks to get it done. And data rooms are very cold because that's what they're supposed to do to, to kind of not counter the heat generated by the processors. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then around 2004, we became um, early partners. My, my firm at the time, Call O'Carry, became for early partners of Salesforce. And this was just sort of at the very beginning of mm -hmm. Salesforce inception. I think at the time that we became partners with them, they were probably about less than 150 people. And mm -hmm. I remember Dreamforce was like 100 people at the Marriott Hotel. Or is this like how many thousands now? It's just, it's, uh, yeah. it's over San Francisco. Exactly. So then we ended up at that point where there was an opportunity to actually be a part of uh, the partnership ecosystem because obviously they are a software-based company. Their software as a service. They really invented the whole idea of um, software as a service, which as mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of renting the utility and it's usage-based pricing. So at that, at that time, um, financial services companies really weren't really buying into it, right? Although the whole idea of cloud was actually new. At the, I mean, it was not that new. ASPs uh, were there before and there are other software, but people feel, companies still felt better, air quotes better, mm -hmm. having data in their like database underneath their desk or on a, on a laptop versus secured in the cloud. And so Salesforce really, and a lot of cloud providers at the time, Google and, and Amazon at the time, just starting to look at this, but really made trust a part of their product roadmap. So we were a part of that evolution. I sold the company called Cloud Chirpus to Accenture Technology in 2015. And during that time that I was sort of working with financial services and insurers, you saw this uptick slowly of pressures on costs, optimizations, mm -hmm. the ability to, to basically do pricing for usage base, which was at the time unheard of earlier in the you know, 2000s. And now it's much more commonplace. Now it's actually the model that everybody was, mm -hmm. you know, all startups really aspire to because of the predictability of revenue, the fact that you actually have to make, you know, so on the, on the flip side of it, the clients are happier because they're mm -hmm. not paying for what they don't use, which is what happened in the old days. When you bought like an SAP CD or Oracle, it was sitting on the shelf. And by the time you got to it, it was already two years behind in terms of features, right? Yep. So now real-time updates, you're getting, you're being uh, charged for what you use. So if you're a big company, you, you leverage everything and you're going to be charged for that. If you're a smaller company, and you'll be using just basics perhaps and some other things and you'll be charged for that. So it really leveled the playing field for innovation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really the end of it. Basically with, with Amazon Web Services now becoming obviously prolific and, and, and uh, Google and Salesforce for, for clients, creating a SaaS business was no longer as difficult as it was maybe 15 years ago. So you're seeing this proliferation, but then at the same time, for the client side, when I say that, I mean the companies, the banks and insurers, they were able to more better, they were, so they were able to bucket their spend from a capital expenditure, which is what a typical large ERP would cost or would fall into versus, versus an operating expenditure, which was something that could be smooth and managed out over time. So from a just- Accounting standpoint, that helps, right? You're deducting well, versus capitalizing. Right. It yeah. helps great deal. And you can always pull back. You find that you're not using as much as you need to. Yep. You know, you could build it into your contracts with your vendors that you could pull back. So that's one part of it. The other part is all the digital transformation, right? We've been re reading about this for many, many decades. Uh, <laughs> 
we at IVP still believe that it's just at the beginning where we're going to need to be. And so that's the, the number I gave you. IDC Research you know, predicts, I think, in 2021, and that's not too far away, but every year since then, it's really been increasing. And I think in 2021, if I can pull the number up, it's like $500 billion globally that will be spent on digital technologies within the financial service to pay space alone. So just the opportunity is really ripe for help. And you know, banks and insurance companies are, are laggers. This Jason. You're kidding. <laughs> so, um, and they need yeah. a lot of help. Yes, so they do. That we're very interested in are, are piping, you know, companies that work on piping, helping them digitize the back end data, leveraging, and because obviously these companies are sitting on a ton of data, but data is not a moat. It's what you do with the data. So what are the systems that are helping companies deal with that? And then also sort of digitizing the whole user experience, the employee experience, workforce of the future. I mean, I could go into a lot of other themes, but hope mm -hmm. that question. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it. I mean, it, there's so many things you talked about there. I, I think about while you were talking about the entire SaaS business model, I slowly started looking at every application installed on my computer and thought to myself, well, I'm pretty sure that I'm basically paying monthly fees on everything except for my operating system at this point. And I look at what that spend is on an annual basis. And that was probably like, I mean, I don't use Adobe now. I used to use it back when I was younger, but the entire Adobe Creative Suite probably in one year costs what I pay for dozens of softwares now. And like you said, it's it's more flexible. You know, number of user seats can be adjusted as you need them. You can cut it off at any point. You basically can make strategic decisions based on, you know, oh, it's been a lean year. What things can we kind of get by without for the next year or so? It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's far more adaptable and far more, it turns it from a fixed cost into a variable cost, which is, you know, Exactly. Hopefully a lot more scalable. So in terms of, you know, you mentioned you're looking at people who are interested in helping with the pipes. So the investments to date, are you saying that basically these are these are companies that are largely going to help bring about cloud infrastructure and cloud use cases within large traditional financial institutions, but do so both on an infrastructure level and a experience level? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. So in, in you know, if you look at our portfolio companies and mm -hmm. competition and some of the exits we've had, that's yeah, several, quite honestly, but you've been around for a while. Very proud of it. Uh, we, yeah. we have had the opportunity to go in early. This is public, so I can talk about it, but Adaptive Insights had uh, exited to Workday in 2018 for a billion mm -hmm. six. And that was, I mean, you don't hear a lot about these B2B fintech unicorns. You hear a lot more mm -hmm. B2B, like the Ubers and the Lyfts that kind of inflate yeah. very quickly. I mean, we're solving real business problems. I'm not putting that, I'm not, I'm not intending to put that down. It's just, I'm just saying, we're really looking at some of the boring, I put air quotes, boring things, but it's things that businesses and banks really need to run their business. So Adaptive Insights was a financial budgeting tool in the cloud. And mm -hmm. it was simplified. It simplified the whole ability to do budgeting real time, adjust it and actually be able to collaborate with people more effectively. So I know it's like obvious now when we look back at it, but at the time it wasn't, right? So uh, IVP actually went in quite early when it was quite young. I think it was around a million at the time mm -hmm. of our we, when, we, uh, when we found them. And then, um, you know, with Verifin, which is a proud um, Canadian company, <laughs> Rob and Dave both uh, were, were key parts of their early days. And actually, we don't really make this very public. So this will be the first time maybe that you'll hear about it. But, you know, we really helped them pivot to the SaaS model because mm -hmm. at the time they were really not in the SaaS model early days. So it's, it's really, you know, working with the companies and sort of helping them figure out the right go-to-market, uh, how to how to do product road mapping and leadership to help them and if they need it. Obviously, there's some amazing CEOs that don't need it, right? Uh -huh. 
teams that have been through this and they don't need it. But, you know, it's definitely been interesting. Now, from the piping standpoint, I, I bring it up only because I think if you look at the innovation landscape in financial services, you'll see that most of the easier stuff has been done, right? When I say yeah. easier, I mean customer experience, uh, mobile, you know, some of those things. And look, they're not perfect, but it's been, mm-hmm. it's been done. Yeah. The harder things are you know, account opening technology, KYC, AML, um, things that reporting, digitizing paper, and it sounds totally boring, but like for insurers, it might be underwriting, helping to sort of digitize and modernize underwriting. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds simple enough because we're also used to populating PDFs online now, right? But I mean, I've seen these flow charts of like decision points of like, okay, so a person populates the first part of the KYC and then they want to open up these four types of accounts, which then triggers like these seven other documents. And then, you know, by the time you've actually aggregated all the pieces of information you need to collect just to open up all these accounts for everybody. Now you're looking at, you know, you're looking at dozens of data points, if not into the, into a hundred, right? It sounds easy, but I mean, there's one firm I know of that basically they claim to be the only one in Canada who's, who's managed to digitize account opening for every type of investment account out there period in the country. And that project took almost a year. <laughs> so not, not as easy as it sounds, quite honestly. It's not, it's not. And I think part of what we when we talk to entrepreneurs, part of what we say to them is you're doing, you're solving a problem that these incumbents are living in and breathing every day, but they've been doing it a certain way for many, many years. You cannot yes. just come in and say, stop what you're doing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's sort of a incremental step that you have to take. So many entrepreneurs will come in and expect a sales cycle to close very quickly as we just were talking about earlier, you know, and- personal pain. Yep. No, it doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> I remember our first deal at Cloud Trippers took us like six months and that was fast, you know? That, that is very fast, yeah. Because we had urgency with time. You know, lots of things were like lined up very nicely for us for that to happen. So when, when we talk about helping out entrepreneurs thinking about go to market, we, we typically look for opportunities for them to prove their idea in a market that is not so large in the sense that, you know, maybe going SMB first, the sales cycle could be a little faster or the pain is more critical or, or you know, yeah. in your and then and there's motivation to move and from there you learn from the experience and then you can swim upstream uh, over time i mean i think also part of it has to be said you know no one likes to be in charge of layoffs um and there's a big fear of of automation of this stuff and you haven't traditionally large institutions have just thrown bodies at this because that was the methodology right and smaller ones are saying well either we're going to have to ramp up with 50 60 thousand dollar bodies or we're going to find a software solution so as they grow i think that there's just much more of a need for a faster sales cycle than an entrenched organization where it's like, oh, you know, a 5% increase equals one person in a 50-person staff already being added, right? So it's a different mindset. Yeah, Um, but, you know, to your comment, though, about automation being a scary thing, I think I would argue that automation is a necessity for us to compete globally. 100%. And people, resources, and we're in a different career cycle than our parents were in, right? They, They would stay at companies for 50 years and retire. Well, I'll say my generation for sure. I think I, my longest job, hopefully with IBPU will be the longest, but my <laughs> longest job until this point was my startup. Before that, it was like every two, three years I would be moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just about retooling, about challenging us to, to be innovative and thinking differently. And there are opportunities to actually upscale. And so companies are dealing with that, right? So there's a lot yeah. of work for the future startups that are focused on this on this particular pain and also automation true automation i mean jason you know this it's really not it's not here yet no innovation and and automation that is helpful Mm -hmm. but 
there still needs human intelligence and all of that. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many variables in life that, you know, we can try to automate for, you know, it really comes down to an 80-20 most of the time, right? We can probably do 80% incredibly effectively. But that other 20%, we're still going to need human interaction or human intervention because the, it becomes Zeno's paradox. You know, you start getting closer and closer to getting to 100%, but the stuff that's, you know, that you can't get to is so complex that it takes longer and longer times, periods to code and try to get right. So it's a fast ramp up and then it's slow, much slower to close that last gap. So. Yeah painful. So uh, talk to me about some of the more recent uh, investments that are publicly known and you're able to speak about. What were some examples of um, kind of underlying themes that may be common to them? And what was the kind of real reason you, you said we have to make this investment? Yeah, I can actually talk uh, about a few. Uh, one is very exciting, but unfortunately, I can't talk about it today. It <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> so because our team has gone through two downturns in the financial crisis cycles in the mm-hmm. 2000, early 2000, then again in 2007 and eight, I think we kind of bring this um, steady arm, if you will, for mm-hmm. entrepreneurs who are kind of going through that. And so our portfolio construction actually reflects that a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about Yaypay for a second, because that's a company I'm, I'm actually quite actively involved with. And Yaypay does mm-hmm. accounts receivable automation. So what it does is, and this is really topical for large companies that have a SaaS model, right? Mm-hmm. Across the board, any companies that have sort of yeah. a, as a subscription, you know, recurring payment model, and where you actually still want to create a very pleasant experience, even though you're asking for someone to pay their bills and they're late and things like that. And so YayPay actually automates the whole process, really brings, makes the CFO office a lot more effective in that area and kind of frees them up from collections mm-hmm. to more of financial intelligence and strategic planning, which is what they should be doing anyway. So it's, it's been, uh, the company is wonderful. Um, Anthony, the CEO, came from Australia, serial entrepreneur. Uh, they're based out of New York and they're doing really well. And the other idea behind, of course, YayPay is that they're going to be collecting insights of these behaviors and it's mm-hmm. going interesting to figure out how to make that sort of important for financial services and, and credit lenders and you know banks and et cetera. It's going to be these alternative data sets that will be interesting. I mean, it's interesting just having a big fascination in behavioral finance. I think about, you know, not just the data, but the mirroring of the behavior of behavioral finance to that data. You can start thinking about just little things about the way just you even write those collection emails. You can start A-B testing any number of things right. that basically, you know, try to nudge them along to make a payment faster than later, right? Right, um, or on time, just like on time, just for simple reminding. And, and, you know, so yeah, it's been very interesting. And then the other one um, more recently is Procurify. And they're, they're a Canadian firm that, that Rob is very active with. And Procurify really is trying to apply insights and intelligence on expense, uh, like expense management. So you see this theory on piping, right? <laughs> We're looking really at the piping, yeah. but also what we call contrarian to the contrarian to the life cycle of, of the financial markets because both of these products will do very well in any environment. But in particular, when you're dealing with a, an economy that might be shrinking or you know, in sort of contraction, I think there's going to be more awareness that you need to be collecting your revenue better, like Absolutely. you software like YayPay. And then you need to be expending, you know, thinking intelligently about how your expenses are being managed, but also more importantly, like not like pull back from expenses that don't make sense, but then put into more expenses that do make sense. So Procurify uh, is based in, um, I believe in Kluber. Don't quote me on that, but I believe it's uh, 
west of Canada. I'm still learning my geography <laughs> of Canada. But anyway, the company's doing really well there. Amanda is an amazing CEO. So that's another one that we're pretty excited about. Yeah, I mean, there's a more, there's tons more. But well, I mean, those- the interesting thing about both of those that you have in common is, again, not only are they SaaS business models, they're SaaS, they look like they're more SaaS serving in a lot of ways, right? Because those two, I mean, they're valuable general businesses altogether. But the companies that basically rely on monthly subscriptions, the ins and outs become a lot more vital because they can they can deviate and vary much more quickly. Exactly. Yeah. There is one that's actually based out of Toronto that I do want to just let the, sure. let, let the audience know about. Um, it's called Notions Research with a K. So the, these are two uh, co-founders of the University of Toronto with amazing you know degrees in AI and artificial intelligence, specifically natural language processing. And you know Canada is very well known for AI due to the good work of the government, but also just like the fact that uh, I think one of the Google executives came there, created a lab, focused on that. So there's a lot of really just amazing things happening in that space. But yeah, um, I see plenty of AI plays in this city. It's quite yeah, interesting. Yeah. And they, you know, they're tackling a real problem, which is, you know, how do insurance companies increase their insurability of people who are formally not insurable because they have a pre-existing condition or they have some kind of terminal condition, right? So that's one use case. Mm-hmm. And then the other is how do we use the same intelligent systems to help insurance companies combat fraud, waste, and abuse in areas of like hospital stay, catastrophic mm-hmm. healthcare, and things like that. So yeah. Team has been proving out their model in Asia. Again, just talking about what, like contextual, like where do you start a company? We talk a lot about that, right? Like you start it where you can actually prove out your model and train your models and learn faster, right? So they're actually um, just recently uh, finished a really large pilot with a, a big global carrier with presence o- over seven countries. Google that, figure that out who it is, <laughs> as well as a few others uh, in the same area. And, uh, you know, eventually we'll be obviously coming back over here and helping us solve some problems here in North America. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I mean, it's an interesting problem and twofold. I mean, first off, you talk about these people who have health issues already and underwriting them and being more challenging. And, you know, a lot of companies just cut it off because it doesn't become worth their time to have the, especially on small policies, to have underwriters spend that kind of time trying to truly understand the problem. And with limited research, you know, that is that is definitely an area that AI, I think, could basically open up a lot more, a lot more of the market or basically underwrite them more appropriately based on their ability to process information, but also spend, reduce the time spent on it. And then the entire, it's funny, you mentioned the entire, like, you know, abuse of it and, you know, being the group benefit space and seeing just how those systems get gained by every provider, right? It's, that is such a, such a huge, and it it costs us all, it costs employers uh, a ton of money, right? So anything that helps keep those premiums down, I am in favor of, and as long as it continues to help people the way it should. So overall, basically, people are looking to pitch to you. <laughs> What's the, like, as you said, you know, this is not a seed capital. This is basically early stage. So in your definition, what does early stage mean in terms of product market fit, um, number of customers, revenue model? What is the, what, are, what are the criteria you look at for that? Yeah, um, no, that's a really great question. So remember, we have about four major theses that we look at within our buckets. And so one is we call it B2B fintechs at B2B insurtechs which are basically newer tech-focused companies that are aiming their you know, resources at solving problems in financial service or insurance space. Then we have, uh, I call it generalized enterprise SaaS for the mm-hmm. financial services space. So basically, Verifin would be one of those, right? Or, or, or adaptive. So sort of generalized um, software as a service in that model. And then cyber security, which again, because that continues to plague financial services and basically every industry, but in particular, highly oh, yeah. regulated. We're, we're the ones that are 
probably even more aware. Um, and then the last is financial accounting. So for us, um, we're looking for basically innovation in these areas. And early stage has a lot of different definitions to every single fund. Every fund defines it differently. Yeah. We define it as, you know, if you're selling to this, you know, the small to mid market space, maybe you have about 30 clients and, and you know, your projections are kind of, or your revenue is recurring at some point of upwards of a million or more, right? Something like that. If you're selling to enterprise clients, then maybe it's six, one or two or three clients. And it's, again, also approaching about a million of actual recurring revenue annually. And you do need to be a North American company. If you have development shops outside, uh, you know, overseas, which a lot of our companies Mm -hmm. do to to optimize on pricing and costs, that's totally fine. Just, you know, more than half of the management needs just just to be in a North American city. Mm -hmm. And believe that that's that's pretty easy to fit. (laughs) You move your CRO, your CMO, your CEO here, and you're good. <laughs> and you know, maybe your COO can can be over over in Ukraine or Mexico or or wherever uh, you have your dev shop. Yep. So then, I mean, those are the general criteria. Um, we obviously we're very founder friendly. The fund is known for that because we look. I'm a former founder. Both D- uh, Dave, Rob, and Carrie, who who's also our other partner, they've all had operations experience. Carrie was actually very early in sort of the mobile revolution. She's a pioneer. She was mm. she's amazing actually, and she was also a public company CFO. So the team is just kind of brings. If you kind of look at all four of our profiles, along with Alex Tong, who's our principal. I mean, all of us sort of bring something different to the table, if you will. So we look at companies that we believe can also, that we can help because that that's good for everybody. So fit with our thesis, fit with our stage. Um, and obviously, you know, a collaborative, open-minded nature, that's always a good thing. It's a good mix because this is a marriage, you know, yeah. we, as early as we go in, we expect to be with you for, you know, at least five to seven years. So Actually, shorter than a marriage, huh? No, longer. <laughs> well, it depends on what country or workplace we're talking about. I mean, I'm sure in Vegas, that's probably that's a very long marriage. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody, uh, just kind of again, like kind of conceptual ones. If you had one wish for something could change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be? Uh, so really, I really like that. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I think you, there's been a lot of press about this Um but the the gender and diversity in our community and our ecosystem is is extremely lacking. Uh, we're all working very hard at it. At our fund, it's unusual. We have almost 50-50 parity in partnerships, which is mm-hmm. extremely unusual. And I actually, I, I mentor a lot of organizations. Uh, Carrie's also very involved and Rob and Dave as well um, in this uh, sort of struggle, I'll say. But you know, we are, we need to be watching out for that. It's unconscious. It's not something that anyone is doing on purpose. It is what it is, right? It's this virtuous cycle. If you think about even how Silicon Valley started, it was a bunch of guys, you know, from Siemens who sold their company and then had money and decided they wanted to go into venture because they want to formalize, you know, angel investing. And that started in the 50s and 60s. And so it's just, it's a virtuous cycle. As more exits happen, more women or men get money and funding and the founders become funders, right? So, you know. The old mafia, you know, you got the PayPal mafia, you got the Facebook mafia. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, we need to be consciously investing in non-traditional founders and diverse founders for that reason, so that we can spread the pool of potential wealth accumulation a, a little bit better. And then that'll just create better opportunities, honestly, for everybody. And actually, the stats say this. Huge, yeah. Founders actually are slightly better at managing money and capital, slightly better at managing growth and revenue. I don't have the specifics anymore on the top of my head, but a lot of research actually says it's actually good business. So. 
The reality is, though, it will take a lot of time. So we know that. We know it's just at the beginning. And I'm yeah. really happy we're talking about it. No, absolutely. I mean, and I've talked about that various organizations I'm involved with. And it's, it's, you know, you try, but sometimes it's very hard to create, especially on leadership teams, leadership teams when you're drawing from an undiverse pool in the first place, right? And it comes down to, yeah, what do you do at the grassroots level to try to change that perception so that people know this is an option? I actually also want to ask the industry to consider removing the excuse of it's a pipeline issue. Take a risk on somebody. Take a risk. Yeah, agreed. It's, oh man, that's such an issue in this industry. I feel like, you know, it's, I feel like, especially in the hiring circles now, it becomes like, well, we don't want to bother training you. So you better show experience at it before. But then if everybody's doing that, then how does anyone get training? It's just, I mean, everybody started somewhere, right? Absolutely. Our industry in particular, the apprenticeship model is, is the key. So we just have to round out our pool from the bottom all the way up to the top. Yeah, I mean, you're talking to someone in an industry who's, who keeps on talking about the succession crisis that we have, and it's solely based on the fact that the industry is not taking an apprenticeship model altogether, right? Like the average advisor being in their mid-60s, uh-huh. and fewer and fewer coming in. And it's like, well, how many of you have ever hired someone younger than you to work in collaboration with you and barely a hand goes up? So you created this problem. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose it's across the board in, in, our, in the broader industry. Um, yeah. The only thing I would say is, for entrepreneurs, take a long view of your partnerships. Really understand who your investors are, but also understand money is really half the equation. Yeah. Valuation is half the equation. It's about growing a team together. So yeah. I think there's a little bit of froth for lots of reasons. We're starting and- to support on it though, right? Like there's studies that show that even like diverse groups of coders produce better products, right? And it makes sense because you have different viewpoints coming into it. And I mean, the number of podcasts I listen to where like one of the women uh, panelists who's, who's in the industry will pipe up and say, yeah, well, here's the thing about that product. And, you know, I don't use it because it was clearly de- developed for not me, right? And it's just like, well, if you're trying to do a mass market product and you don't, you've only got one viewpoint from one type of person coding this thing what makes you think you're going to be able to take this thing global right it just it's so it's so narrow-minded in that in that mindset it is actually it was interesting i was reading a just along the topic of sort of women and diversity again uh, i was reading about the wealth transfer that was happening across us and yeah. i believe uh, it's going to happen it's 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 like the math the most amount i don't remember the top of my but trillions of dollars that will transfer in the next decade from the younger to the older generation but also in the middle of that a huge transfer of wealth from the husband to the wife. And I'm shocked that there's not more things geared towards women. <laughs> like it's still, oh, let me go to your husband, even though he's not going to be here in about 15 years to deal with this. And, and, and so it's yeah. just, it's a mindset shift that um, I think. Yeah, I mean, we, we make a we make a habit. We make sure that we have a relationship with both parties, so they both feel heard, heard, and they both right. know we can come to us. And even when I teach, um, you know, one of the first things I say is like, "Look, I'm not trying to be gender biased with what I'm saying here, but what I'm saying is that traditionally, uh, and the studies show this." women do not get as involved in the financial decisions as the husband does. So picture that happening being the, the normal course of action for 40 to 50 years, and then it gets thrown on you. That is an overwhelming experience that you don't know where to start. So I plead, I plead with them all. I said, make sure that you are an equal partner in these decisions, because at some point, statistics and you know more, and mortality tables show it's going to all be on you. Anyway, so good wish. And I share that one with you. Second question is, what's been the biggest challenge in getting information to where it is today? So Information Venture Partners, by the way, website, informationvp.com, if you want to look us up. Sure. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> Our team is amazing investors. I mean, they're amazing investors. They're amazing champions of founders and operators. 
you know, we're just not great at marketing and we know this and uh, we're trying to do more of it. Um, but I think that would, that's probably a challenge we're working. I wouldn't say it's the biggest. I mean, the challenge is always finding the- What VC is awesome at marketing? I don't know that I've seen that. Andreessen Hor- I mean, you Well, know, yeah, but I mean, I mean comparing itself guys- to Andreessen Horowitz. <laughs> Horowitz, Sagoya. I mean, all the ones that are sort of big ones. And then, of course, there's a bunch in New York and Toronto that, that yeah. look, at the end of the day, we know that our, that our results will speak for themselves. But, but at the same time, if they're not, you know, if they're not aware of you- and that you don't even get to talk to them. <laughs> so, uh, but um, yeah, I really, I really think just that, um, and and we're working on it actively, and and uh, you know, but no one can take away a track record, and, and that's sort of no. what, what stands that what the theme stands behind. And like I said, I mean, on your website alone, it looks like you have more exits than you do entrance. Than you do active investments yeah. right now, and that's yes. that's a pretty impressive track record. Yes, thank you. Especially as I know some of the people personally involved in some of those companies. So. Yeah, absolutely, you do. Yep. And the last question is, what excites you the most about what you're doing that gets you up every day to keep doing what it is you're doing? Yeah. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story. My five-year-old daughter says to me, I really don't understand what you do, mommy. I mean, you go to meetings, you you like have breakfast meetings, you do this and that, you're on the computer all the time. <laughs> what do you do? And I said, well, you know, and I really was struggling because I was like, oh God, I don't know how, how do I explain venture capital to her? How do I <laughs> deploy? <laughs> and weird. I said, you know, I grow baby companies, honey. That's what mommy does. That's a good way of saying it. Oh, so I mean, it gets me very excited because look, I I was a former founder. I really loved the thrill of working with an amazing team to build an amazing product and to get the exit we did. We're very proud of it. But now we get to, I get to be with another team who have so many different skill sets and we get to do that again, but like more amplified. So it Mm -hmm. makes me feel very lucky very lucky, Jason, to be a part of the ecosystem. And I want to give back and I want to show more and I want to show up and and say, look, there is a path for all of us to do this, if that's what you want to do, for females, for non-traditional founders and investors. And um, so that's why I do it. It's really fun. And Sabrina gets to see me do it, which is also really kind of fun. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Thank you so much for your time. This is great. And I hope everyone's going to appreciate, uh, appreciate this one. I'm sure they will. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. So that was my interview with Twan Nguyen of Information Venture Partners. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you learned a lot from that conversation. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.